Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Post-Scarcity Anarchism by Murray Bookchin as we begin a new chapter on technology. Towards a liberatory technology. Not since the days of the Industrial Revolution have popular attitudes towards technology fluctuated as sharply as in the past few decades. During most of the 20s, and even well into the 30s, public opinion generally welcomed technological innovation and identified man's welfare with the industrial advances of the time. This was a period when Soviet apologists could justify Stalin's most brutal methods and worst crimes merely by describing him as the industrializer of modern Russia. It was also a period when the most effective critique of capitalist society could rest on the brute facts of economic and technological stagnation in the United States and Western Europe. To many people, there seemed to be a direct one-to-one relationship between technological advances and social progress. A fetishism of the word industrialization excused the most abusive of economic plans and programs. Today, we would regard these attitudes as naive, except perhaps for the technicians and scientists who design the hardware, the feeling of most people towards technological innovation could be described as schizoid. Divided into a gnawing fear of nuclear extinction on the one hand, and a yearning for material abundance, leisure, and security on the other. Technology, too, seems to be at odds with itself. The bomb is pitted against the power reactor, the intercontinental missile against the communications satellite. The same technological discipline tends to appear both as a foe and a friend of humanity, and even traditionally human-oriented sciences, such as medicine, occupy an ambivalent position, as witness the promises of advances in chemotherapy and the threat created by research in biological warfare. It is not surprising to find that the tension between promise and threat is increasingly being resolved in favour of threat by a blanket rejection of technology. To an ever-growing extent, technology is viewed as a demon, imbued with a sinister life of its own, that is likely to mechanize man if it fails to exterminate him. The deep pessimism this view produces is often as simplistic as the optimism that prevailed in earlier decades. There is a very real danger that we will lose our perspective toward technology, that we will neglect its liberatory tendencies, and, worse, submit fatalistically to its use for destructive ends. If we are not to be paralyzed by this new form of social fatalism, a balance must be struck. The purpose of this article is to explore three questions. What is the liberatory potential of modern technology, both materially and spiritually? What tendencies, if any, are reshaping the machine for use in an organic, human-oriented society? And finally, how can the new technology and resources be used in an ecological manner? That is, to promote the balance of nature, the full development of natural regions, and the creation of organic, humanistic communities. 
the emphasis in the above remarks should be placed on the word potential. I make no claim that technology is necessarily liberatory or consistently beneficial to man's development, but I surely do not believe that man is destined to be enslaved by technology and technological modes of thought, as Jünger and Elu imply in their books on the subject. Footnote 21 on the contrary, I shall try to show that an organic mode of life deprived of its technological component would be as non-functional as a man deprived of his skeleton. Technology must be viewed as the basic structural support of a society. It is literally the framework of an economy and of many social institutions. Technology and Freedom the year 1848 stands out as a turning point in the history of modern revolutions. This was the year when Marxism made its debut as a distinct ideology in the pages of the Communist Manifesto, and when the proletariat, represented by the Parisian workers, made its debut as a distinct political force on the barricades of June. It could also be said that 1848, a year close to the halfway mark of the 19th century, represents the culmination of the traditional steam-powered technology initiated by the Newcomen engine a century and a half earlier. What strikes us about the convergence of these ideological, political, and technological milestones is the extent to which the Communist Manifesto and the June Barricades were in advance of their time. In the 1840s, the Industrial Revolution centered around three areas of the economy textile production, iron making, and transportation. The invention of Arkwright's spinning machine, Watt's steam engine, and Cartwright's power loom had finally brought the factory system to the textile industry. Meanwhile, a number of striking innovations in iron making technology assured the supply of high quality, inexpensive metals needed to sustain factory and railway expansion. But these innovations, important as they were, were not accompanied by commensurate charges in other areas of industrial technology. For one thing, few steam engines were rated at more than 15 horsepower, and the best blast furnaces provided little more than a hundred tons of iron a week, a fraction of the thousands of tons produced daily by modern furnaces. More important, the remaining areas of the economy were not yet significantly affected by technological innovation. Mining techniques, for example, had changed little since the days of the Renaissance. The miner still worked the ore face with a handpick and a crowbar, and drainage pumps, ventilation systems, and hauling techniques were not greatly improved over the descriptions we find in Agricola's classic on mining written three centuries earlier. Agriculture was only emerging from its centuries-old sleep. Although a great deal of land had been cleared for food cultivation, soil studies were still a novelty. So heavy, in fact, was the weight of tradition and conservatism that most harvesting was still done by hand, despite the fact that a mechanical reaper had been perfected as early as 1822. Buildings, despite their massiveness and ornateness, were erected primarily by sheer muscle power. 
The hand crane and windlass still occupied the mechanical centre of the construction site. Steel was a relatively rare metal. As late as 1850, it was priced at $250 a ton. And, until the discovery of the Bessemer converter, steel-making techniques had stagnated for centuries. Finally, although precision tools had made great forward strides, it is worth noting that Charles Babbage's efforts to build a sophisticated mechanical computer were thwarted by the inadequate machining techniques of the time. I have reviewed these technological developments because both their promise and their limitations exercised a profound influence on 19th century revolutionary thought. The innovations in textile and iron-making technology provided a new sense of promise, indeed a new stimulus, to socialist and utopian thought. It seemed to the revolutionary theorist that for the first time in history, he could anchor his dream of a liberatory society in the visible prospect of material abundance and increased leisure for the mass of humanity. Socialism, the theorists argued, could be based on self-interest rather than on man's dubious nobility of mind and spirit. Technological innovation had transmuted the socialist ideal from a vague humanitarian hope into a practical program. The newly acquired practicality compelled many socialist theorists, particularly Marx and Engels, to grapple with the technological limitations of their time. They were faced with a strategic issue. In all previous revolutions, technology had not yet developed to a level where men could be freed from material want, toil, and the struggle over the necessities of life. However glowing and lofty were the revolutionary ideals of the past, the vast majority of the people, burdened by material want, had to leave the stage of history after the revolution, return to work, and deliver the management of society to a new, leisured class of exploiters. Indeed, any attempt to equalize the wealth of society at a low level of technological development would not have eliminated want, but would have merely made it into a general feature of society as a whole, thereby recreating all the conditions for a new struggle over the material things of life, for new forms of property, and eventually for a new system of class domination. A development of the productive forces is the, quote, absolutely necessary practical premise of communism, wrote Marx and Engels in 1846, because without it, want is generalized, and with want, the struggle for necessities and all the old filthy business would necessarily be reproduced, end quote. Citation 12. Virtually all the utopias, theories, and revolutionary programs of the early 19th century were faced with problems of necessity, of how to allocate labor and material goods at a relatively low level of technological development. These problems permeated revolutionary thought in a way comparable only to the impact of original sin on Christian theology. The fact that men would have to devote a substantial portion of their time to toil, for which they would get scant returns, formed a major premise of all socialist ideology, authoritarian and libertarian, utopian and scientific, Marxist and anarchist. Implicit in the Marxist notion of a planned economy was the fact, 
incontestably clear in Marx's day, that socialism would still be burdened by relatively scarce resources. Men would have to plan, in effect to restrict, the distribution of goods and would have to rationalize, in effect to intensify, the use of labor. Toil under socialism would be a duty, a responsibility which every able-bodied individual would have to undertake. Even Proudhon advanced this dour view when he wrote, quote, Yes, life is a struggle, but this struggle is not between man and man, it is between man and nature, and it is each one's duty to share it. End quote. Citation 13. This austere, almost biblical, emphasis on struggle and duty reflects the harsh quality of socialist thought during the Industrial Revolution. The problem of dealing with want and work, an age-old problem perpetuated by the early Industrial Revolution, produced the great divergence in revolutionary ideas between socialism and anarchism. Freedom would still be circumscribed by necessity in the event of a revolution. How was this world of necessity to be administered? How could the allocation of goods and duties be decided? Marx left this decision to a state power, a transitional proletarian state power to be sure, but nevertheless a coercive body, established above society. According to Marx, the state would wither away as technology developed and enlarged the domain of freedom, granting humanity material plenty and the leisure to control its affairs directly. This strange calculus, in which necessity and freedom were mediated by the state, differed very little politically from the common run of bourgeois democratic radical opinion in the last century. The anarchist hope for the abolition of the state, on the other hand, rested largely on a belief in the viability of man's social instincts. Bakunin, for example, thought custom would compel any individuals with anti-social proclivities to abide by collectivist values and needs without obliging society to use coercion. Kropotkin, who exercised more influence among anarchists in this area of speculation, invoked man's propensity for mutual aid, essentially a social instinct, as the guarantor of solidarity in an anarchist community a concept which he derived from his study of animal and social evolution. The fact remains, however, that in both cases, the Marxist and the anarchist, the answer to the problem of want and work was shot through with ambiguity. The realm of necessity was brutally present. It could not be conjured away by mere theory and speculation. The Marxists could hope to administer necessity by means of a state, and the anarchists to deal with it through free communities. But given the limited technological development of the last century, in the last analysis both schools depended on an act of faith to cope with the problem of want and work. Anarchists could argue against the Marxists that any transitional state, however revolutionary its rhetoric and democratic its structure, would be self-perpetuating. It would tend to become an end in itself, and to preserve the very material and social conditions it had been created to remove. For such a state to wither away, that is, promote its own dissolution, would require its leaders and bureaucracy to be people of superhuman moral qualities. The Marxists, in turn, 
could invoke history to show that custom and mutualistic propensities were never effective barriers to the pressures of material need, or to the onslaught of property, or to the development of exploitation and class domination. Accordingly, they dismissed anarchism as an ethical doctrine which revived the mystique of the natural man and his inborn social virtues. The problem of want and work, of the realm of necessity, was never satisfactorily resolved by either body of doctrine in the last century. It is to the lasting credit of anarchism that it uncompromisingly retained its high ideal of freedom, the ideal of spontaneous organization, community, and the abolition of all authority. Although this ideal remained only a vision of man's future, of the time when technology would eliminate the realm of necessity entirely. Marxism increasingly compromised its ideal of freedom, painfully qualifying it with transitional stages and political expediencies. Until today, it is an ideology of naked power, pragmatic efficiency, and social centralization, almost indistinguishable from the ideologies of modern state capitalism. Footnote 22 in retrospect, it is astonishing to consider how long the problem of want and work cast its shadow over revolutionary theory. In a span of only nine decades, the years between 1850 and 1940, Western society created, passed through, and evolved beyond two major epochs of technological history, the Paleotechnic Age of Coal and Steel, and the Neotechnic Age of Electric Power, Synthetic Chemicals, Electricity, and Internal Combustion Engines. Ironically, both ages of technology seemed to enhance the importance of toil in society. As the number of industrial workers increased in proportion to other social classes, labor, more precisely, toil, footnote 23, acquired an increasingly high status in revolutionary thought. During this period, the propaganda of the socialists often sounded like a paean to toil. Not only was toil ennobling, but the workers were extolled as the only useful individuals in the social fabric. They were endowed with a supposedly superior instinctive ability that made them the arbiters of philosophy, art, and social organization. This puritanical work ethic of the left did not diminish with the passage of time, and in fact acquired a certain urgency in the 1930s. Mass unemployment made the job and the social organization of labor the central themes of socialist propaganda in the 1930s. Instead of focusing their message on the emancipation of man from toil, socialists tended to depict socialism as a beehive of industrial activity, humming with work for all. The communists pointed to Russia as a land where every able-bodied individual was employed and where labor was continually in demand. Surprising as it may seem today, little more than a generation ago, socialism was equated with a work-oriented society and liberty with the material security provided by full employment. The world of necessity had subtly invaded and corrupted the ideal of freedom. That the socialist notions of the last generation now seem to be anachronisms is not due to any superior insights that prevail today. The last three decades particularly the years of the late 1950s, mark a turning point in technological development, 
a technological revolution that negates all the values, political schemes, and social perspectives held by mankind throughout all previous recorded history. After thousands of years of torturous development, the countries of the Western world, and potentially all countries, are confronted by the possibility of a materially abundant, almost workless era in which most of the means of life can be provided by machines. As we shall see, a new technology has developed that could largely replace the realm of necessity by the realm of freedom. So obvious is this fact to millions of people in the United States and Europe that it no longer requires elaborate explanations or theoretical exegesis. This technological revolution and the prospects it holds for society as a whole form the premises of radically new lifestyles among today's young people. A generation that is rapidly divesting itself of the values and the age-old work-oriented traditions of its elders. Even recent demands for a guaranteed annual income sound like faint echoes of the new reality that currently permeates the thinking of the young. Owing to the development of a cybernetic technology, the notion of a toilless mode of life has become an article of faith to an ever-increasing number of young people. In fact, the real issue we face today is not whether this new technology can provide us with the means of life in a toilless society, but whether it can help to humanize society. Whether it can contribute to the creation of entirely new relationships between man and man. The demand for a guaranteed annual income is still anchored in the quantitative promise of technology, in the possibility of satisfying material needs without toil. This quantitative approach is already lagging behind technological developments that carry a new qualitative promise, the promise of decentralized, communitarian lifestyles, or what I prefer to call ecological forms of human association. Footnote 24. I am asking a question that is quite different from what is ordinarily posed with respect to modern technology. Is this technology staking out a new dimension in human freedom in the liberation of man? Can it not only liberate man from want and work, but also lead him to a free, harmonious, balanced human community? An eco-community that would promote the unrestricted development of his potentialities. Finally, can it carry man beyond the realm of freedom into the realm of life and desire? And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. I apologize that my voice sounds like this today. I hope it did not come through too much in the recording. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And you can support the network at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to get lots of bonus shows and stuff too. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.